Well, open your Bibles up to John chapter 17, and we're going to begin studying God's Word. Uh, Over the last several weeks, we've been studying Jesus' final teachings here uh, called the Farewell Discourse, recorded in John 13 through 16. And every week we saw how Jesus taught them everything they needed to know to withstand the trials and tribulations of this life and to carry out his mission here on earth while he's gone until they get to go see him again or until he comes back. Well, tonight we're going to begin studying his final prayer with the disciples. And I've titled this sermon, The Lord's Prayer, because it's the longest and most detailed prayer that we have from Jesus. Uh, You might be familiar with the Lord's Prayer in Luke 11 and Matthew 6, which is really more of a disciple's prayer. It's Jesus teaching the disciples how to pray, right? Literally, they say, teach us how to pray, and then Jesus teaches them how to pray. Well, this is interesting because this is not a how-to passage on prayer, What I think we get tonight, what I think we get here is something much, much deeper. Here we get to see Jesus' heart in prayer. We get to see him relating to his heavenly father in prayer. And we get to see the height and the width and the depth of God's love for us and for his mission in the world. So we're going to read John chapter 17 verses 1 through 5 and then we'll skip down to 24 through 26. Hear the word of the Lord. When Jesus had spoken these words, he lifted up his eyes to heaven and said, Father, the hour has come. Glorify your Son, that the Son may glorify you. Since you have given him authority over all flesh to give eternal life to all whom you gave him. And this is eternal life, that they know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ whom you have sent. I glorified you on earth, having accomplished the work that you gave me to do. And now, Father... Glorify me in your own presence with the glory that I had with you before the world existed. Verse 24. Father, I desire that they also, whom you have given me, may be with me where I am, to see my glory that you have given me because you loved me before the foundation of the world. O righteous Father, even though the world does not know you, I know you. And these know you, know that you have sent me. I may know to them your name. And I will continue to make it known that the love with which you have loved me may be in them and I in them. This is the reading of God's word. Uh, When Jesus was on the Mount of Transfiguration, God spoke and said, This is my son in whom I'm well pleased. Listen to him. So let's give our attention to his words now. Uh, This week, Steve and I had the pleasure of interviewing three candidates for our youth intern position, and hopefully we'll get to update you guys on that soon. Uh, There were three fantastic interviews because we had three fantastic candidates. And two of those candidates, uh, something interesting happened. In their story, they began to talk about their parents. Uh, One of the ladies talked about how when she was in middle school that she really struggled with doubts about her faith. Well, she brought those doubts to her mother, and her mother sat down and answered all of her questions in this really kind and patient and loving way. And I thought, man, that sounds amazing. Like, that sounds like a really wonderful mom. And then the the other candidate, uh, she told the stories about how her father was a pastor, and he loved to disciple people. He was good at it. He enjoyed it. And she said that as a young girl, she would wake up in the morning and her father would be sitting at the table with the devotional ready. And anyone from the family could come and just sit down and join him for a family devotional. I just thought, man, like, that's awesome. I wish I was that kind of dad. (laughs) 
that sounds like a great dad. I'd like to meet him. And so I even got to clicking on the internet. Like I found his website. I found his bio. I thought about emailing him. I was like, no, don't do that. Don't creep on it. Like I kind of turned into creeper mode because I was like, this sounds like a guy I would want to know. This sounds like somebody I would want to be with. Well, tonight, as we study Jesus's prayer, what I want you to come away with is, is this sense of like, I want to know the God that he knows. I want to know the Father that he knows. I want to experience the Father that Jesus is talking to. That sounds like a God I want to know. That sounds like a God I want to be with and experience. And what we're going to find is that the good news is, is that that God that he is talking to wants to know us and be with us. And he's made a way so that we can. So we're going to look at three things in this passage. We're going to look at what Jesus prayed, why Jesus prayed it, and why does it matter for us. If you're a young listener out there, let me give you three things to look for. Okay, a question, what is glory? And then why does Jesus want glory? And then why does Jesus pray? What is glory? Why does Jesus want glory? And why pray? So the first thing, let's look at why, what Jesus prayed. So Jesus makes two requests in this passage. If you look back at verse 1, he says, Father, the hour has come. Okay. Now, when Jesus talks about his hour, he is not saying a specific hour. He is referring to an event. He's referring to the crucifixion. So from eternity past, the Father, Son, and the Spirit had planned out Jesus' life and death, and history had been moving towards the moment of Jesus' death. And Jesus' entire life and ministry were a preparation for his death. It's as if it was, everything else has been the practice, and it's been the first three quarters of the football game, and now Jesus is in the fourth quarter. It's the final two minutes, and on the cross, he is going to achieve victory at the end of the game. He's saying, now's the time for victory. And here he makes a request. He says, glorify your son. That's what he wants. He's asking the father to glorify him. Now, glory is one of those Christianese words that we kind of throw around all the time. And, but it's really hard to define. It's really kind of vague. So let me, let me give you just a, just a minute to try to explain what Jesus means. The Hebrew word for glory literally means weight. Right? Something that has glory has weight. It matters. It has importance. And then the Greek word for glory or to glorify means to exalt or to lift up or to raise. So what the concept that it's trying to get at is that you have something that is that's important, that matters. And this, this thing matters so much that it is lifted up and it's exalted and it gets the praise and honor and glory that it's due. Uh, think about the sun. The sun has the most matter of any object in our solar system. It has the most mass, right? And because the solar system matters the most, I'm sorry, the sun, everything in the solar system orbits around that sun. And when that sun comes up in the morning, we see it. It is exalted. We behold it and we give it all of the glory that it deserves because it's the thing that matters the most. So when Jesus asked the Father to glorify him, he's saying, I want, you to, I want you to show the world how much I matter on the cross. I want to be lifted up, exalted, praised, 
and honored as something that should be worshipped and adored. As Charlie and I were talking about this, he described it well. He said, so the Father wants to put Jesus on blast. And I said, yes. Jesus is asking the Father to put him on blast before all of creation. If you don't know what that means, ask somebody who's under 20 or 25. They'll explain it to you. So his, second, so his first request is to be glorified, and his second request is similar. Look at verse 5. Jesus says, And now, Father, glorify me in your own presence with the glory that I had with you before the world existed. So Jesus asked the Father to glorify him again, but this time it's in a different context, right? Jesus is saying, instead of glorifying him on earth, Jesus, the fa- wants, Jesus wants the Father to glorify him in his presence, it's, it's, this is more of a personal, face-to-face glorification. Whereas on the cross, Jesus wants God to glorify him to the world. In his resurrection and ascension, Jesus wants the Father to glorify him to himself. He said, I want to see you. I, I want to see you face-to-face. I want to be in your presence. Uh, I want to know that I matter to you and that you matter to me. Think about... Uh, a parent, a new parent lifting up their child and just gazing into their face and looking at every little detail and they're adoring each other back and forth. That's what Jesus is asking for. So what did Jesus pray? Jesus prays for the Father to glorify him through the cross to the world and to glorify him to himself through the ascension. He wants the cross to have the weight to have weight in the eyes of the world. He wants the whole world to see just how much the cross matters. And he wants to see how much he matters in the face of the Father. He wants the world to behold the cross, and he wants the Father to behold him. Now, you might think Jesus is self-centered for praying this. He's not, and we'll get to that in the second point. But what I want to point out to you quickly is that the Father answered this prayer. That the Father has displayed the glory of Jesus before the entire world, right? The the world knows that Jesus matters. Uh, Richard Dawkins is a famous evolutionist, uh, an atheist. He wrote a book called The God Delusion, and he once called the crucifixion parochial. The word parochial means general or narrow. He's basically saying that it only mattered to these this small group of people, this small time period, and it doesn't matter to anybody else. The problem is, is that the crucifixion is widely displayed in art and history ever since it took place. And the Bible is the number one selling book in the world with over 5 billion copies sold. That was uh, what the Guinness Book World Records said in 1995. The cross has mattered throughout history and ever since it took place. that God has, has exalted Jesus despite opposition from all the world. And, and if you or me or, or anyone else lets that sink in, then it changes us. Uh, this week, I, I saw a video clip about a man named uh, Jordan Peterson. Uh, Jordan Peterson is a psychologist, and he, has, he wrote a book recently that was really famous called 12 Rules for Life, An Antidote for Chaos. He is not a Christian. He says that he doesn't believe in God, but he should. But maybe he should. But the concept of God is terrifying to him. 
And in this interview, he was, he was talking about what he calls the narrative world, which is the world that we live in, and the objective world, which is the world that we can't see that's true, but it's outside of us. And he said, every now and then in my life, I see this objective world come in and touch the narrative world. He begins to choke up and he begins to cry. And he said, and I guess the greatest example of this is, is Jesus Christ. He's saying in Jesus, the objective world and the narrative world collide. And he says, I, I want to believe this, but it's too terrifying for me to believe. What is happening? The weight of the crucifixion, the weight of Jesus and his glory is coming down on him. God has answered Jesus' prayer to be glorified, as we'll talk about later. There's a way that, that Peterson and all of us can experience the goodness of that glory and not the terror. But the first thing that we see is that Jesus prayed for glory. He prayed that the Father would glorify him to the earth and that he would be glorified to the Father. The second thing we see is why Jesus prayed. Look back at verse 1. Jesus said, glorify your Son that the Son may glorify you. So Jesus asked the Father to glorify him so he can glorify the Father. Jesus' desire for glory is not grounded in him and in himself and his own selfishness. It's grounded in his love for the Father and his desire for the Father to be glorified. It's grounded in his desire to give the Father the weight and the glory and the exaltation that the Father deserves. And this is, this is nothing new for the Father and the Son. This is what they were doing before all of creation. That's why Jesus said in verse 5 that he wants the Father to glorify him in his presence with the glory that they have before the foundation of the world. See, before the world existed, there was God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, loving, serving, and glorifying each other. There was a, a vibrant, dynamic relationship. It's one God and three persons, but they're not static and stoic. They're, there's not a, they're not a monad. They're not one being. There's three beings loving, serving, glorifying each other. And Jesus says, I want, I want to glorify you because that's who we are and that's what we do and that's how we have been from all of creation. So Jesus' prayer is not self-centered. It is radically other-centered. It is radically other-centered because that's the kind of God he is. That's the kind of God we have. That's the kind of God we serve. At his core, the Christian God is not a taker. He's a giver. The Christian God is not a taker. He's a giver. He is other-centered, not self-centered. In all through this passage, we see givers and gifts, right? The Father gives the Son authority over all flesh. The Son gives people eternal life. The Son glorifies the Father through his work. He's a giver of gifts. That's who he is. And that makes him different than every other God in every other religion that has been created. The other gods and other religions, they're monads. That's one being. And because they're monads, they can only take. They can only use. They can't give. They're static and stoic. They're not this pulsating, loving, dynamic being that the one and true, only true God is. Uh, C.S. Lewis describes this well in his book, Screwtape Letters. Uh, if you haven't read it, it's a great book. It's the second highest selling book for him behind Mere Christianity. 
But it's written as a senior devil writing to a junior devil, trying to teach him how to tempt the patient, which is a Christian. And this is, Lewis captures this sort of difference uh, in our God in this exchange. I'm going to read it to you, and it'll be behind me. One must face the fact that all the talk about his love for men and his service being perfect freedom is not, as one would gladly believe, mere propaganda, but an appalling truth. He really does want to fill the universe with a lot of loathsome little replicas of himself, creatures whose life on a miniature scale will be qualitatively like his own, not because he has absorbed them, but because they, their wills freely come, conform to his. We want cattle who can finally become food. He wants servants who can finally become sons. We want to suck in. He wants to give out. We are empty and would be filled. He is full and flows over. You see, the devils that Lewis describes are solitary, needy gods that only take. Our God is a God that's overflowing with love and passion. He's a lover who gives. Let me ask you this. What is your view of God? And specifically, what is your view of God the Father? Uh, do you view him as some distant creator that just created this watch called the world and started it and then left? Do you view him as some cruel dictator who has established all these rules to keep you from having fun? Do you, do you view him as a, a sort of self, uh, self-absorbed celebrity? Or do you view him as the Father, the Son, and the Spirit eternally existing in love to give love? That's who the God of the Bible is. That's why Jesus prayed. He prays for glory. He prays to give glory because that's who he is. And that matters. That is life-changing. And that's what we're going to look at here as we come to a close. Why does that matter to us? Let me give you three reasons why that matters to us. The first one is this. Uh, This is not a how-to sermon on prayer, but I want to point this out because I think it's important. Jesus' prayer teaches us that prayer is relational, not transactional. Prayer is relational, not transactional. The thing I just couldn't wrap my mind around when I was reading this prayer at the beginning of the week was, why did Jesus pray this prayer? He knows what's going to happen. He knows the plan. He's got everything he needs to carry it out. What is he doing? Then it dawned on me. He prayed because he wanted to talk to his heavenly father about it. He had been spending all this time teaching the disciples about this glorious plan, and he was so raptured up into it that he said, I want to talk to my father about this. I have these desires that I want to express to him, that I want to share with him. His prayer is a conversation with a person that wants to be with us. It's not a transaction. So I think we tend to view prayer the way I view a repairman, okay? I I call a repairman when I have a problem with the house. I call the repairman. I I see the problem. It needs to be fixed. I call the repairman. I say, this is what's wrong with my house. I need you to come fix it. We set up the appointment. The repairman comes over and he fixes it. If he doesn't, I call my brother-in-law, Joe, and I beg him to come help me because I am too inept to do things by myself. Well, that's normally what happens, but whenever we were selling our house, a guy came over to inspect for termites. 
And when he came over, this guy didn't just want to inspect my house for termites. He wanted to talk. He wanted to tell me his whole life story. He told me where he lived, where he was from. He told me about his family, his wife and his kids. He told me about the weather and all the different jobs that he had done. He was not there just to check my house for termites. He was there to get to know me. I felt like I had to like, take off my shoes and invite him for dinner. He was not there for a transaction. He was there for a relationship. That's how our prayer life ought to be. That's what God wants with us. He just doesn't want a transaction. He wants a relationship. So by all means, bring him your requests. Bring him the deepest desires, questions, thoughts of your heart. But bring it to be with him because he wants to be with you. And that's the second thing we see from this prayer. As Jesus says in verses 24 through 26 that we read, Jesus not only wants to glorify the Father, but he wants to glorify us. He wants to bring us into that relationship. It's so beautiful. I want to read it again. Uh, If you look at 1724, just listen to Jesus' heart. Father, I desire that they also, whom you have given me, may be with me, where I am, to see my glory that you have given me because you loved me before the foundation of the world. Look at verse 26. I made known to them your name, and I will continue to make it known that the love with which you have loved me may be in them and I in them. (laughs) For glory, for Jesus, is to have us with him. It's, It's to be with him. It's to be near him. It's to be raptured up in the Father, Son, the Spirit, and then have us with him. That's his desire. Jesus went to the cross not only to glorify the Father, but to glorify us with him. Uh, I once heard a seminary professor say that he was, he was sort of summarizing all these different uh, books and movies and their views of heaven and everything that was in their view of heaven and how they described heaven. And he said, now the problem with them is there's not Jesus in any of them. Heaven is where Jesus is, right? But for Jesus, heaven is also with us. Jesus died so that we could come to heaven with him. It says in Psalm 8 that God created us for glory and honor. But it says in Romans 3, 23, that we have all sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. So the only way that God could bring us into glory is to send his son to rescue us. God made him to be no sin. God made him who knew no sin to be sin for us so that we might have the righteousness of God and we could come to heaven and experience glory with Jesus. And that's where we find life, right? That's where we find eternal life. Look, if you look back at verses 2 and 3, Jesus says, uh, Since you have given him authority over all flesh to give eternal life to all whom you have given him. And this is eternal life, that they know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ whom you have sent. Jesus wants us to have true, deep, meaningful life. And that is found in knowing God. And being in a relationship with him, being raptured up into this loving community of Father, Son, and Spirit. Now, we're going to talk next week about how to know God as we get into the rest of the passage. But but this week, what I really just wanted you to feel is like, this is a God that I want to know. 
This is a God that I want to be with and I want to love because he is a God that loves me and wants to be with me. Right? He loves us the way a good father loves his children and wants to provide for them and care for them and be with them. He loves us the way a husband and a wife love each other and they, they get intimate and they, they see each other face to face and they're naked and they're unashamed. This word to know in the Bible is what God uses when he says, and Adam knew Eve. It is, a, it is, a, it is the most vulnerable, intimate, passionate kind of knowing that we could experience on earth, and God wants to share it with him because he loves us and because that's who he is. Uh, a few years ago, actually five years ago, my wife and I went on our 10th honeymoon anniversary, our 10th anniversary trip. Okay, so we just celebrated 15 years. Five years ago, we went on our, our 10th anniversary trip. We went to Jamaica, which was a good trip. It was my first time ever out of the country. My first time to do every one of those like beachy, all-inclusive things. Okay, it was good. Uh, you know, but what was interesting was the first few days, all we could talk about was like how great it was to be at the beach and to be alone and to be together and, and to not be with the kids and not have all responsibilities like, and just rest on the beach. And we just enjoyed that the first few days. It was wonderful just to be together. But then as the week went on, things started to shift. Not because we didn't like each other, which could happen, but not in this particular case. Because we were enjoying each other so much, we said, hey, wouldn't it be nice to take this trip with some friends sometime? Wouldn't it be fun to do this kind of trip with our friends? And then we thought, man, you know, maybe this kind of trip would even be fun with our kids once they're a little bit older. You see, what happened was, as we were loving and enjoying each other, we wanted that love to spill over onto other people. We didn't want to include other people in it. That's the God of the Bible. Father, Son, and Holy Spirit loving each other and loving us out of the overflow of that love and wanting us to be with Him. That's the very heart of God. And when you give your life to Christ, you, you submit to Him, he becomes your son, right? He becomes the center of your solar system. And you glorify him, you worship him, you serve him. And you experience his love and his radiance. And everything is put in its proper place. Where the solar system orbits around the sun, we orbit around God. We let him be the center of our lives and we experience his love. Maybe, uh, maybe that's you. Maybe you, you've put your faith in Christ and you, you know and you love and you experience that. But, but maybe you're still a little cynical. Maybe you're still a little afraid. Maybe you're like Jordan Peterson and you, you have doubts. Maybe you're thinking, hey, Shane, you keep saying that this God is love, but I've read the Old Testament. And there's some chapters in there that aren't very loving. And I've read some of Jesus' hard sayings in the New Testament. And they don't seem very loving. It's true. There, there's a lot of hard things in the Bible to understand, uh, especially in the Old Testament, and I don't want to downplay that at all. But I do want to tell you that, that to me, where I start to understand those passages is on the cross. I look at Jesus on the cross when Jesus says, the same Jesus that prayed this prayer says, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Think about that. 
My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? For a moment on the cross, Jesus in his human nature lost what he had never lost before, and that is the presence of his heavenly Father that loved him. He went through, can you imagine the agony, the pain, the suffering that Jesus had to go through in those moments? Yeah, he trusted the Father enough to pray for that here. He prayed for that moment here. And that God granted that prayer. And that God used that prayer to rescue us and to rescue this fallen creation from sin and misery. I may not be able to understand every passage in this Bible. But I can, because of the cross, I can start with the presupposition that God is love. And that he loves me. And that whatever he had to do must have been the right and loving thing to do. Uh, Jordan Peterson says he can't, he just can't believe the gospel because of the weight of the law. That he, he sees the law, and he sees the weight of it, and it, it just terrifies him. If that's you, or if he happens to see this on Facebook, which I'm sure he will. What I would say is that on the cross, you see the weight of the law falling on Jesus. He took the penalty for our law breaking for us so we could receive God's love and his grace by faith. And when you believe that, the terror of the cross becomes beautiful. It becomes something loving. It becomes powerful and it transforms your life. And this God becomes a God that you want to know that you trust, and that you give your life to. So let's take a moment. Let's pray as Jesus prayed. Let's pray that God would bring us into his glory, that he would show us the glory of the Father, and that we would be raptured into his love. Let's pray together.